Hello, listeners. This is Andrew Schreier, host of Talking Addiction Recovery Podcast. And today I have a special guest talking with me about his recent book, Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. Michael Brody Waits is a recovering addict, an entrepreneur, TED Talk presenter, author, and many other things. And Mike, you reached out to me to be a guest on this podcast. So first order is to thank you for making this happen. Without you, we wouldn't be doing this. I appreciate and that. So the biggest thing is I really want to talk about your book, the full title, Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, How to Lead Like Your Life Depends on It. What's your mission behind writing this book? Oh, wow. We're just going to start with like the, the hard questions, right? Okay. Yep. Well, so, you know, when I was, when I was looking at writing this book, um, I wouldn't be the first person to write a book on great leadership and I wouldn't be the first addict to tell his story. But to me, what had never been done before that I wanted to bring into the world was no one had ever taken the system, the process that millions of addicts use to recover and converted it into a system for how you create a situation where anyone can become a great leader. And um, for me, it was really born out of leading my startup to where we had 50 employees. We were one of the fastest growing companies in America. And I had read a book on authenticity that I gave to everyone on my team. And they were all struggling to actually implement what was in it. It had great ideas. It's from one of my favorite people. It was a Brene Brown book. She's an idol of mine. Um, but my team was not able to execute what was in the book. And, and I remember I was at breakfast with one of them and I said, so like, what's the problem? She's like, I don't have what you have. I don't have like this recovery system that, that teaches you how to do this. And, and, you know, like she didn't know what she was talking about, but she doesn't have a 10 step. She didn't have certain things. And so that's when I realized, okay, dude, like everybody's talking about authenticity, but no one's making it accessible and reproducible the way that they do 12 step recovery. So that's my job. And I started looking at teaching um, first coaching, speaking, and then delivering workshops and creating coaching programs. And I was finally, okay, I finally have a way to distill down what we do in recovery, how I integrated that into being a leader in corporate America, nonprofit, startup, you name it, and make it into a digestible, simple step-by-step -step solution so that anyone can essentially become an authentic leader, what I call mass-free leader. Um, and you don't just have to be a recovering addict to be able to do it. So that's my long-winded answer as to why. It was perfect because one of the things that stands out about your books in comparison to all the other books I've read on addiction recovery is I was thinking of if I walked into a bookstore and the title of your book and the cover of it, it feels like I could find it in the business section of like leadership, but it's also I could find it in the self-help or the addiction section as well. And that was something I've never really seen before because you have audiences who you have someone who's a leader who might say oh i'm nothing like an addict and you also have someone who has an addiction and thinks there's no way i can be a leader and Dude. you hold those two like together and i've never seen that before you just gave like seriously you just, you just brought tears to my eyes um because that, that was the whole goal. When I sold my company, I was like really asking God, what do you want me to do? And, and I really felt guided to serve at the intersection of entrepreneurship, business leadership and addiction recovery. And I wasn't quite sure how to do that. And um, part of, you know, when people say what's the goal for the book is I want this to be a book that they give addicts in treatment 
and that they give leaders in business schools. And we've actually had treatment centers say that they're using the book. And we've actually had business schools say that they're using the book. Not a lot, like it's not like common yet, or, and I don't know if it ever will be imposter syndrome totally here, but I was really trying to reconcile these two worlds and not just for the sake of like shock value or conversation, but because the way they integrated in me is like such, it was such a special and fortunate experience. And I really wanted to be able to externalize it. And I was tired of people saying, Oh, look at like how great you are because you're able to use your recovery. So openly as a leader, my thing is, is that I don't really want to be the person that like everybody's depending on or, or like the cult of personality. I want it to be accessible to all because 12 step recovery for me was accessible no matter who invented it, no matter who was running, no matter, no matter what, no personalities mattered. I was able to get the value prop. I was able to get clean. And so I wanted to be able to externalize that intersection because I was tired of like, I have sponsees that would be like, okay, so like, I know what to do in recovery, Mike, but what do I do in this business situation? I'm like, you already know what to do. You just think that for some reason you have to compartmentalize your recovery from your business experience. Don't do that. You have, you're like, I did a social media video on this. You're like this fucking animal with these big ass claws that can tear shit up and you think that you have nothing. Like right. you've been building this superpower and just go into the professional world and do what you would do in recovery and you will win. And, and it's really hard for people to believe. So I want to kind of pave that path, externalize it, and make it accessible. You bring up a good point. A lot of people, when they start to do things in recovery and getting the job and getting some other things going in their life, there are times where they're faced with that dilemma. Like I have to keep my addiction a secret. That's a different part of me that I have to keep from others or to hide because of what it might bring out or what other people might think. Here you're talking about, you don't have to do that. That, that authenticity allows you to be the person you are and to take what you've learned and gone through and to not just like get through it or survive it, but your description and your plan shows how you can actually thrive in it yes. to become a leader. Leadership is a thriving position, not just a, oh, I survived this. Because some people in recovery do get through that survival part, but I don't always necessarily see them thriving. And I think that holds them back sometimes is that view of my addiction. I, I, it totally does. Now, I want to be clear, if you're in early recovery, um, how you deal with your anonymity is your business. Um, but for me, I was really fortunate that my first sponsor was very, very public. Like the way I met him was I was at a 12-step convention and he was sitting there giving a workshop with his wife next to him about how he had stayed clean, living dirty, being bisexual and cheating on her. And he's giving this as a workshop. And I was like, dude, I want that guy to be my sponsor. Because <laughs> like, I want to be able to be that free in, in owning my story. And so he told me what's true in God's world anywhere is true everywhere. And that was something that I really started to be able to appreciate and live. And I think when we look at leadership, whether you're an addict or not, we really feel limited by our personal stories. And I also think, to be fair to, to anybody that's felt like they're held back, we haven't had anybody really be able to say that authenticity in terms of business and leadership is anything more than self-help. Like we've never had anybody say, you know what, this drives concrete business outcomes 
And it's as, it's as important as having a mobile optimized website. Like nobody's ever drawn that conclusion. And so when I came across the Harvard Business Review study that said, as we've transitioned from a manufacturing economy to a services economy, that time is our most scarce resource inside companies. And they labeled it largely unmanaged. I, I got that data point. I was like, wait a second. In my experience, being authentic, practicing these principles has saved me a tremendous amount of time. And if this is something I can link to, to concrete business outcomes, maybe I can actually truly change business leadership as we know it. And so then I created an assessment to assess all the places where people are being inauthentic. And I discovered that 90% of leaders are doing what I call wearing a mask at work. Um, and they are saying that it's costing them 500 hours a year. And so all of a sudden, you kind of go from, oh, be authentic, sounds great, just like, you know, touchy-feely, new agey, good for you, I'm glad that you work recovery, to holy shit, I don't want to hire anybody and put them in a leadership position unless they can lead themselves the way a fucking recovering addict can. Like, right. And because I want to people that are more efficient, more productive, I want to win, I want to make money, like whatever it is that you want to do when you're running a business, whether it's you're motivated by profit or you're motivated by purpose, you want people that are going to help you win and up until now, authenticity has been like this. Oh, you can have permission to be authentic. Just like, oh, you can have permission to own that you're an addict. We've never said, if you're not authentic, you're fired. And if you're not a recovering addict, you're fired. Like nobody's ever socialized those ideas before. Right. And I think that like, that's kind of what I'm trying to get to. I'm not saying we should fire anybody that's not a recovering addict, although that'd be a kind of cool <laughs> world to live in for a minute, just for all of us that hide in a freaking room in the back of a church somewhere drinking shitty coffee. Wouldn't that right. be a great world where they're rounding yeah. up all the people that aren't addicts in recovery? But I'm saying in a movie, not in the real world. But like, we've never really looked at authenticity and being a recovering addict, these two separate but connected notions as anything other than maybe we, you can have permission to be these things. And I want to push forward the thought that maybe these are the keys to success in both work and life. And there's, there's two points I want to get to. One is to learn more about your idea behind the mask that you talk about a lot. You also mentioned this book being given to multiple different people and in treatment programs or in business-like places to companies. And when we talked before, one of your quotes stood out more than anything else. And I, I wish I read your book before I published my book because I would have put your quote in my book. I would put this quote up in every treatment program I ever ran is mm -hmm. the one that said, recovery is not a straight jacket. It is a life jacket. That was one that I paused while reading the book and just, took a step back there and was like, wow, I don't know how to explain, you know, treatment and recovery any better way right off the gate by, by using that. And since we've, I've read that and since we've talked, I've had conversations with clients and patients who are struggling with treatment or recovery. And I've used that line to really let them know, like, this is not meant to to control you or to ruin you or make things worse. Like this is made to try and save you. And that is one of the best quotes that I would ever use in my work as a clinical supervisor and as an addiction counselor, mm. when it comes to recovery, that sentence right there is my go-to one from now on. Dude. Um, I've done two other podcasts today and 
the reason I was so looking forward to this one is when I, they were with business people, when I'm talking to my recovering people, I cry and I get chills. And, and so you just did that for me. And I'm grateful for that because like, you know, you write the book, sometimes your own quotes, you don't know which ones are going to impact people. And, and sometimes you need someone to say, Hey, this really meant a lot to me. And I, and when you said that, I imagine when I, you know, when I was in rehab, I saw the 12 steps on the wall and uh, I specifically saw step two and I was like, Oh, I'm fucked. I don't have a higher power. There's no way this will work for me. Um, and then someone was like, we'll just pay attention to step one. Um, it felt like a straitjacket. It, it felt incredibly encumbering. Um, and the freedom that one can experience by owning their story, owning the fact that they are an addict um, is really, really great. But I, I just, you know, and, and like you're saying, and, and like I've been saying, the part that we leave out is... Um, I thank God for my addiction before I ever start thanking him for my recovery. Like if they could give me a cure, I would say no. Like my addiction and as a result, my recovery are the two best things about me and I don't ever want them to change. And, and I just, I don't typically hear that, but like I have a competitive advantage as a human on this earth over people that are not addicts because I have a loaded gun pointed at my head. If I don't practice these principles, I'll eventually live in enough lies and have enough pain that I will relapse and die. So I have an excuse to tell the customer what I really think, to tell my wife the truth. I have an excuse to prioritize practicing rigorous authenticity, surrendering the outcome and doing uncomfortable work as if my life depends on it. And then as a result, I get a skill level that is incredible. But the second thing that I get as a result of this loaded gun is that loaded gun is pointed at millions of people. And as a result, we have programs like the one that you run and, and meetings all around the world where are literally their academies for creating mask-free leaders. You get to sit there and train like you're in basic training, like you're a freaking Navy SEAL for the next level of leadership. And it's for free, again, for a shitty cup of coffee and, you know, in mm -hmm. one hour of your time. And so because of this threat, this existential threat, you both have the, the incentive that most people don't have to practice these principles and work in life. And you have the opportunity to train with others that are doing the same. And as a result, you get to master how to live what I call mask free. And it not only improves your personal outcomes, it improves your professional outcomes. And the truth is you don't have to be an addict to get this. Anyone can do it. But like I said, the addicts have the incentive and the training grounds. And so if you are an addict and you're out there and you are still using, I'm telling you that recovery, I'm not going to say the quote again, because I'd be weird to quote myself, but recovery is not just something that you do to offset the negative. It is a superpower. It's like you're, you're Wolverine or an X-Men or whatever, and you are suddenly able to lift a building. You're able to see through glass. Like, well, actually, I guess a lot of us can see through glass, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Whatever the superpower is, like it's an actual superpower. When you mentioned that, that transitions into a point, because when you, in the book, you, you reference the X-Men. Yep. And the point of that was so spot on because for a while once i'll throw on some of those old x-men cartoons um, yeah and, I, and I'll, I'll look at them and i remember one of the recent episodes was talking about how there's mutants who look at their what happens to them is like a curse and then there are those who look at it as a gift and sometimes you yep. see even part of the x-men rogue is one i believe who, who kind of battles that this is a curse because i can't do certain things and some of her teammates are trying to say like well it's a it's a gift 
and these abilities that we have. And I think that ties into a lot of one of my favorite quotes from Henry Ford is whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. If someone thinks that this is going to be a curse for the rest of their life, even if they are sober, that's probably going to hold them back and they are probably going to struggle and they are going to not be able to reach that full accomplishment. But I know a lot of people who they look back on it. And I had a guy in group a couple of weeks ago who said, you know, everything that I've done, there's still things that I feel shitty about. There's still things that I know I hurt people of, but do I feel bad to say that I don't think I would want this to change? That's, no. that's a question he proposed. Yeah, no. And the group was like, no way. Like that's not something that you just want to change because we look at it too, where I am when I do counseling with addiction, but I do mental health. I do like families. I do with kids. I often reference that one of the things that I present on is the stigmas of counseling and treatment. And I know a lot of people who come out a lot stronger by going to treatment and going to therapy and the things they've gone through that other people would never get to experience. Absolutely. The, I mean, and you know, that's the thing with addicts. And I think with a lot of people, pain is the greatest motivator and it motivates us to do things that we otherwise wouldn't do to achieve things that we otherwise would not have achieved. Um, but I'll say that if you're, I totally get and empathize with somebody that thinks that this is a curse. Like I did not get to this level of, you know, Oh, I'm so excited. I'm a drug addict. I'll just say it everywhere. I didn't get there overnight. Like my, after a year clean and I was in uh, you know, a fortune 50 company, um, I told people I was an alcoholic cause I thought drug addict would have too much of a stigma for a period of time. Like there were things that I did to hide myself. Um, I had, it was, it was a process my first two years of recovery to really understand, um, all the levels to which I could be, um, vulnerable. And it wasn't until once I did that, that I started to see what a superpower it was. But the thing, when I think about an addict that like, will always see this as a curse, if they're able to stay clean, I think that they have better recovery than I do because I think that's a lot harder. It's a lot harder when you feel like you're bearing the burden of a curse and yet you stay clean anyway. So kudos to them for being able to do it anyway. But I, at this, this flip side of that coin is because I see it as a superpower and I experience it as a superpower, it is really fucking easy to stay clean. Right. Like it is, it is. I mean, and I'm not saying easy in the sense that I don't go to meetings. I don't have a sponsor. I don't have sponsees. I do all that stuff. But it's really easy because I don't see my home group meets every Wednesday and Friday night. And I don't see that time as an investment solely in my recovery. That's an investment in my capacity as a CEO, my capacity as a father, as a husband. It's an investment in my ability to impact others. It's an ability, it's an investment in my ability to be a good, uh, you know, friend to my dog. Like, I mean, you name it. It's an investment in, in who I am as a person. And because I get to experience, you know, like roughly 128 or, you know, 100 plus hours awake during the course of the week, those two hours optimize everything else. And so it makes it really easy. It's like it, it's easy to prioritize. And, and now it took me 10 years for it to become true muscle memory. And then I have to keep coming back in order to keep that muscle memory. But if I saw it as a curse, it would be hard for me to spare those two or three hours a week that I go to a meeting or when I pick up a phone or whatever. But because I see it as my ability, like it's the fuel for my ability to show up as my best self everywhere else. It's like my wife knows that like Wednesday and Friday night, 7.30 PM, I'll see you. 
Like, and, and, and then, you know, she's also learned that if she tries, if she, she's not one of the people like tells me not to go, but, but if she, she'll be like, you need to go. I'll be like, oh, I'm not going to go tonight. She'll be like, no, no, you need to go because she knows that that's where I go to become my best self. And so it makes it really easy to prioritize and do. That's a really good point because there are times where I know people feel like they have to say like, oh, it's either this or that. I have to commit to doing this and what happens when my priorities clash or they conflict. And if I go to a meeting, for example, is that going to conflict with not being able to spend time with my family for an hour? And you hear people juggle that stuff and those priorities. But if, if all, if those parties and the individual or the family members and all that can understand that this isn't about this or this, but going there actually makes it better for all of that. It doesn't have to be where priorities are being pinned against one another because you hear that with some people in recovery and why people sometimes struggle with it. So that's a really good point on taking that and saying, this isn't just going to make me better for my recovery, or this isn't just about that, but it's about also, this is going to make me better as a father, as someone at my job, as, as someone, even like you said, like friendship with my dog, that is something that that can make you better at in all those areas, not just about, oh, I'm going to put all those things aside and not think about those things or care about those things. This is going to make me better for all of it. So that's a really good point. Do you, uh, did you ever see the movie Karate Kid? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to butcher the movie, but like I'll get a <laughs> lot of um, addicts that are uh, new in recovery. They find out that I've been a successful entrepreneur. And so they'll like, they'll seek me out and they'll be like, Hey man, so I've got six months clean. I really want to set myself up to be a good entrepreneur. And I'll be like, don't do it. Be like, what? I'll be like, don't worry about being an entrepreneur. Don't worry about getting ahead professionally. Don't do any of that stuff. And so I'll, what I'll do is I'll tell them the story of the karate kid. And so for, to use the, the analogy or the, or the metaphor, I don't even know. So for anyone who hasn't known, like this guy wants to learn karate from this master and so the first weekend he goes to the master's house, the master shows him like 50 cars and he says, you need to wax these cars for me. And he shows him how to wax on and wax off. So the kid spends all weekend waxing the cars and he's like, now am I going to learn karate? He's like, no, go home. So the next weekend, he, same thing. Now he's like, I need you to sand the floor. So he slams this whole deck the whole weekend. It's killing him. He's like, am I going to learn karate? No. And then it's, I need you to paint the fence the next weekend. And so at the end of all this, he, he meets with Mr. Miyagi and he goes, like, he doesn't say it this way. I'm going to say, my, he goes, what the fuck are you doing, dude? You, I came here to learn karate. Like, you haven't taught me jack shit. It's a PG movie, so he doesn't say any of that stuff. Right. And, and Mr. Miyagi goes, oh, oh I, haven't, I haven't taught you anything? Okay. All right, get ready. Like, wax on, wax off. And then he throws a punch and he does the motion to wax on, wax off, and he's able to block it. And then he throws a kick and he says, sand the floor. And he's able to block the kick with the moves that he was using in sanding the floor. Same thing with paint the fence. And so basically at the end, Mr. Miyagi like bows. and He's like, I taught you karate, motherfucker. Like, he's like, I, you learned karate. Right. You just didn't realize it. So what I tell these entrepreneurs that seek me out, they're like, okay, so how, how do I go be successful? I say, for the first two years, you be the best recovering addict you can be. And it's like you're Daniel learning from Mr. Miyagi. You think you're just waxing the car. You think you're just sanding the floor. You think you're just painting the fence. But you are learning a Harvard MBA level of leadership when you do that. So once you built that foundation and you go out into the real world and then you decide on a solid foundation that you want to build a company, you will have something that no one else has. And you have fast-tracked yourself again for the cost of a shitty cup of coffee. 
two years in a row. So just focus on that. It's going to feel like you're sanding the floor. It's going to feel like you're waxing the car. It's going to feel like you're painting the fence, but you're earning a black belt in how to be a leader. And those people will learn that then when they're faced with those other situations where then they are challenged again to start here, do this and all that. And then you realize like, this is part of it. I'm, I'm doing this for now, but someone else who never went through that, they're put in that position. They might not be able to stay in that. They might walk away and say, well, you know, fuck this. I got to go. I can't, this is, I'm not learning anything. Why am I here? Someone in recovery who goes through that process, then when they're faced in another area in their life, will see that connection and they'll understand that. And they'll have that advantage over someone who never had to do that. I had that happen really early in my recovery because the two things an addict, well, there's a lot of things, but there's two main things in relevant to this point that an addict needs to know is their will isn't what helps them win. And they need to learn how to trade short-term gratification for long-term gratification. And so when I was in my first year in recovery, you know, I am convinced that I will die if I don't stay clean. So whatever my sponsor tells me to do, I do it. I felt he, he says to me, Hey, we have a process that works. If you do what we do, you can stay clean, but you got to be willing to follow the program. Well, I also was working um, an entry level job as a temp at uh, Dell Computer at the time when it was a Fortune 50 company. And, and when I got onto the sales floor with 500 people as a temp, with like a 90% chance of not making it as like a true employee, they said, We have a system for how you sell on the phone. All you have to do is execute the system and you'll be successful. After three months out of 500 reps, I was number one, but it wasn't because I was more talented. It's because I had learned how to execute a proven system as if my life depended on it at night and on the weekends when I was doing my recovery. So during the day, it wasn't that big of a stretch to go in there and say, you know what, whatever I think with my self will, I'm just going to do it my way. Like, no, I'll do it their way or, or, or short-term gratification. I'm going to just, you know, buck the system because I want to get what I want now. No, I'm going to do the things that they tell me to do to get the long-term thing. If my sponsor was telling me if I didn't do what he told me to do, I was going to die. It wasn't that hard to say, okay, Dell, I'll do what you tell me to do. And I was just better at executing the system that already worked than the people around me. Yeah. Phenomenal point. That's, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize or, look at that potential and if they can know that or see that or be educated on it, what you're doing can help them realize where that can lead them and what it can do for them. So that's a really good point. I'm glad we talked about that. Can you briefly go over, I know there's, there's a lot to this, but I did, I want to make sure we touched on your three main key principles that you sure. try and talk about. I know there's a lot that goes into them. You have a process and everything, but can you just give like a brief, like one over sure. of what those three key principles are? So three principles are born out of my experience working a 12 step program and how I integrated that into leadership. So they are inspired by it, but they are not it. Um, but anybody that's in recovery will understand them. So the first one is practice rigorous authenticity. Um, it is not authenticity. Anybody can talk about that time where they kept it real in front of grandma. I'm talking about you are your true self, no matter the risk in every situation. And that is something that most people do. Most people in this world, if they're authentic at all, practice selective authenticity, especially leaders. So rigorous authenticity is doing it no matter what. And what I found was the best way to practice rigorous authenticity is to constantly ask yourself, which mask am I wearing right now? Or am I tempted to wear? 
And so principle one is all about identifying which of the masks um, that I have identified in my book, which are four different masks, which of the masks are you wearing? So principle two is surrender the outcome. And so again, in, in business and leadership, nobody knows how to do this at all. They're obsessed with outcomes. They're responsible for outcomes. Salespeople are obsessed with focusing on their quota and all this kind of stuff. So as recovering addicts, we learn that we have to surrender the outcome and, and, and surrender is like the hardest thing for any human being to do because we're all control freaks. So what we specifically learn is how to take our focus from all of the things that we can't control and reallocate that energy and focus to the things that we can. And that is something that requires tremendous repetition in order to be able to do naturally because human beings naturally to survive want to try to control everything around them. So in a business environment, everybody's trying to manage what everybody else thinks of them. They're, they're talking about their quota. They're talking about this. These aren't the fair metrics, but like you can spot the recovering addict because they're not in the water cooler doing the gossip. They're out there actually just focusing on what they can. They're making the calls, hitting the metrics, taking the activities. They've been able to surrender what they can. And so in order to live and lead without a mask, we have to know how to surrender the outcome because the outcome we're scared of when we take off the mask is a fear of what people are going to think, which leads us to the third principle. If you can practice rigorous authenticity, identify the mask you want to take off. If you can surrender the outcome, what will happen when you take it off? Then you can do uncomfortable work and addicts that are in recovery know how to do uncomfortable work. Everybody in the professional world is taught, when I do speaking engagements, people be like, wait a second, wait a second. We know how to do uncomfortable work. I'm like, no, you don't. You know how to do smart work and hard work. Let's not get this confused. That's physical and intellectual. Uncomfortable work is emotional. It's a sensation in your body that deters you from taking action that you know is good for you. Look in any business organization today and, you will, and I can show you all the managers aren't performance managing their employees because they're avoiding a difficult conversation. And so that's because that's not because it's hard and smart work. It's because it's uncomfortable work. And we've all seen someone doing eight hours of hard work, avoiding 10 minutes of uncomfortable work. And when you're able to achieve the clarity of what's the mask that I want to wear here, when you're able to surrender the outcome and reclaim a tremendous amount of energy with that clarity and that energy, you're able to do more uncomfortable work than other people, which is really where you grow and get results. Right. You see people sometimes make decisions, not because it's the right one or the best one, but they do it because they're uncomfortable with the decision they, they know they should make. So right. that difficult conversation, you know, you should have, and know it's the right thing to do. And all of a sudden you hear that because they say, well, I don't, I don't feel like doing that. When you right. say, I don't feel like doing that, that's telling you it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And, 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 and the thing is, is that when it's uncomfortable, it triggers fight or flight. And so it's not a logic center. It's that we, we aren't executing based off of logic at that point. We're executing based off of emotion. And so that's how you end up not asking the boss for a raise, not telling your parents that you don't want them to stay at your house. You want them to stay at a hotel, not breaking up with a significant other that you know isn't good for you. Like all those things that we're avoiding, not negotiating with the landlord about rent during COVID, not telling the person that you live with that you need some personal space, not, not looking at your finances to get a budget. Like the list goes on and on. There are all these things that we're avoiding, but it's not because intellectually we think it's good for us to avoid them. It's because experientially we are going through a form of fight or flight and we have to learn how to overcome that wiring. And that's something that addicts learn how to do in recovery because it's not natural for us to not use drugs and not drink and whatever your behavior you're addicted to. Exactly. One of the parts about your book that stands out from other things that I've read or looked at is those three steps. You don't just talk about them because sometimes I, I feel like there's a lot of 
just do this for like yeah. recovery. Like, we'll just be authentic or just surrender. Just, you know, do uncomfortable work, you know, do the uncomfortable. But what you do is you describe how to do that. Yes. And I feel like that misses a lot. I've always been someone on, when I do work with patients and clients and I'm trying to get someone to understand something, I'm a big person on, this is what it is. This is the outcome, but where's that bridge on how do I do that? How do I get from, okay, yes, I need to practice authenticity. The end of the bridge is being authentic, but how do I do that? Just saying yep. be authentic isn't going to get you there. You know, like, oh, just yep. be honest, just be true. But you break down how to do it. And I well, find that extremely beneficial to people who are, who get stuck on that. So, so that's the thing that I, that's, that's one of the major reasons I wrote the book. I was so sick and tired of people saying, just be an authentic leader. So let's contrast the experiences. Um, you watch a Ted talk or listen to a podcast or read a book where they're like, man, the power of authenticity. It's great. Like, look at all these great things about it. Just, you know what, just be authentic. And then when I got clean, they said, work the steps or die motherfucker get a sponsor and go to 90 meetings in 90 days and then turn around and start sponsoring someone else and go to about five to seven meetings a week. It was a very clear step-by-step -step process that I needed to execute in order to get the value proposition that they promised. And meanwhile, every CEO, executive, um, solopreneur, whatever around the world is getting something to the equivalent of just don't use drugs, man. Just don't use drugs. Like, what are you doing? So, so when it comes to authentic leadership, my theory, and, and we're proving it, is the reason that we don't have authentic leaders is for two reasons. The first one is we haven't diagnosed the problem. We keep thinking that they can choose to be authentic. They are addicted to wearing a mask. That is the problem. They are addicted the same way we were with the dope. So you can't just give, me, give them a book and hope that they'll be okay. You need to give them a program the same way an addict needs a program to overcome their addiction. The second thing is, is that there is, because we haven't had that diagnosis, there isn't a program. There isn't a how. There is no step-by-step -step for this is how you reproduce authentic leadership at every level of leadership in the world. And so what we did was we took the three principles, and this is what I told my entire team when we were writing the book, is I said, if this is just another book that inspires someone and doesn't give them a foolproof implementation, I'm going to kill myself because I am, I am so tired of reading those books and getting inspired, and then two months later, nothing has changed. Um, so what we did was we took the system that we built. Everything is about what I love about a 12 step program is the empathy that it has for every potential user. It's got the literature. It's got, it's got all the pieces that you need to have a successful recovery. It's just up to you whether you use them. Most leaders, it's a complete mystery for how you reproduce authentic leadership for themselves, let alone everybody around them. So we, we boiled it down into a step-by-step -step system where literally you take these actions that are as prescribed. We even have a website that, that reinforces all of this. You can just, it's a system that can be executed in one minute a day that allows you to, on a regular basis, identify the mask that you want to wear, surrender the outcomes, and do uncomfortable work. But we leave basically almost nothing up to chance, nothing up to interpretation, and that's probably, it's probably a benefit for me. I'm an addict. We want to control our experiences, right? Well, I want to control the experience for the user. And so this is, I've got, I've got 500 people in the mastery program, 70 people that like are in actively being mastery sponsored. And it's literally, they are just taking the step-by-step -step actions as prescribed. I've got CEOs, 
I've got stay-at-home parents. I've got everywhere in between, teachers in a classroom, you name it. And they don't have to ask, what do I do? The stuff they have to do is hard enough. Having that difficult conversation with your boss is hard enough. You shouldn't have to ask, how do I prepare to be an authentic leader so I can have it? Like we give you the the step-by-step system. We give you a mask-free sponsor. And then we have mask-free society meetings where people that are working this program are able to share their experience so that you get crystal clear idea of what it takes to be a mask-free leader. And so it's both um, a program that's designed to show recovering addicts how they can weaponize their recovery in a professional realm, but it's also borrowing from recovery and equipping almost anyone in the world with a step-by-step system that allows them to quote unquote achieve mask recovery the same way I got a step-by-step system to help me achieve uh, drug recovery. That's amazing. I think because of that too, it's going to make this more feasible, more realistic, more applicable, where it's not just something they read it and I'm done with it or, oh, it sounded like that was a good read and then you ask them later and they forget about it, but something that you actually have them work on in the book. There's, there's spots for the, you to write in it yep. and apply it and also look at what you're doing following through with it. So this isn't a do this, then everything's, you're good, you know, read it and everything's good. But this is a thing that's a program, you know, like we see with recovery, where recovery isn't just stopping using, but it's what are you going to do now? What are the things you're going to be doing and taking care of and learning and applying, not just get to this point, then you're done. To me, this has always been where I talk to clients and patients. This is a lifelong thing. So there's no point where like, oh, like I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, one of the things I worry most is when someone says, I got this. Right. Um, You know, usually that's a point where they think they've done all the work and they can just, it's going to coast now. And what you're talking about is an ongoing program, really. It's a way of life. Of how to do this. And, and 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 it does intimidate people. One of the reasons that we built it so that you can execute it in one minute a day is so that it's not cumbersome, but it does scare people away because I'm like, I, I believe that mask addiction is a real thing and I don't think you're going to fully recover. I think your choice is to stay in recovery and so you have to be, remain engaged in a program of recovery. And that means that we get a lot of people that will like come and be interested, um, but they're not willing to commit to that way of life and then they'll quote unquote mask relapse. But like when we were building the mastery program and we were launching the book and someone was like, maybe we can delay launching the program, you know, because everything they need is in the book. I was like, have you read my book? My book literally says this is the book alone is not going to do it for you. It's like it's a book that outlines all this stuff. And then I say, this is not enough. Like, and, and it's not because I'm trying to get you to join the mastery program. It's because it's the same reason again, why they don't just give addicts a, a, you know, a book based in a 12 step fellowship or a clinical book. And then you just go home and it's like, Oh, I have the information now. There are things where that's true, where all you need is the information and then you're good. Like I, the way I set up my webcam, I just needed the information. I'm good. But as long as we're living in a world that's trying you to make you anyone but yourself. And as long as there are perceived incentives professionally and personally aligned with you pretending to not be yourself, you're going to need to be engaged in some sort of a mastery program if you want to live and lead mask free is my personal belief. And so this program is designed to be a supplement to people in 12 step recovery, um, a primary way for people that are outside of 12 step recovery to engage in a similar practice 
Um, and, it, and, it, and it gives them the ability to achieve the result that we promise, which is 500 hours a year reclaimed by living leading mass free. But they got to be committed. And they got to be I mean, we, we make it step by step and make it really small footprint in terms of time. But um, I always tell people, I said, don't come here for the Ferrari moment. Everybody wants to go to a workshop where they're going to have this huge aha, and then they're going to get a Ferrari. I'm like, we're taking a Ferrari, we're chopping up into a million pieces, and you're getting one little piece every day. And you're going to have to take the piece every single day the rest of your life or every week the rest of your life, but it'll change your life. And so some people are okay with that and some people aren't. Yeah, that's great, though. I think that's what separates some of what you've done and the things that have come out with other books and where some authors and people, and I, I don't, I don't want to say I knock that of some people who they've got sober and they've started doing things. They, they say here, do this or try this. But what you've done is take it like a step further and create like a program for it. And that stands out different than a lot of things that you see out there. One of the questions that I had, and I'm interested to know your take on this was when I was reading your book, I was talking about how, you know, leaders don't think that they're have anything to do with being an addict. Some people with an addiction really struggle with the idea of thinking like they're a leader. That got me to thinking of some of the people I work with. And if I were to ask, you know, at the clinic where I do supervision and counseling, over 400 patients with opioid addiction. And I wonder, like, if I were to survey them and ask them how many of them think of themselves as being a leader, I really don't believe that number would be really high. Yeah. So, and I think one of the reasons they think that is one area is because of their addiction. I think another area too is we look at leadership a lot as a role in like the big company or like mm -hmm. the big position here, but there's gotta be more areas where people with addiction can be leaders. Have you ever so, thought about that? Yeah. So when you look, you're saying it perfectly. So first of all, when we look at the professional world, uh, even if it's a military government, corporate, whatever, the people that we call leaders, most of them are followers. They're not actually leading themselves. They are following someone else. The world makes you a follower. It doesn't teach you how to lead yourself. The people that lead themselves are the people that are willing to take a stand no matter the cost, even if it's unpopular. The people that are able to um, scale themselves no matter the price or the consequences. And so when you look at living and leading mask-free, there's no greater act of self-leadership than allowing yourself to be expressed as your true self rather than hiding your true self out of fear for what other people think. That is not leadership. That is not taking an unpopular stance. And so we have defined leader as, um, you know, a function at a company as a ceremonial position within, you know, government or politics. But the people that are true leaders are the people that are willing to take an unpopular stance, no matter the cost, when it's the right thing to do that. And if it's being true to yourself, that's always the right decision. And so what I would say is for those, for the addicts that are in treatment, they're right. Right now, they're not, they're not a leader. But they are going through a process to learn how to lead themselves. And in a world where everybody is so focused on how to lead others that we've forgotten how to lead ourselves, they are actually learning the missing ingredient to true leadership. All the people that changed the world for the better had to lead themselves, go through the door first and get bloody in order to do that. The people that changed the world for the better were not the ones that said, I'm going to completely sell out my true self and be whoever you want me to be in order to get what I want. That's being led. Our leaders are like obsessed with their followers on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on, you know, politi no politician is a real leader. 
they're, they're, they're all managing perception. And so if I go to the addicts, I'd be like, Hey, the only way you're going to achieve recovery is if you lead yourself. That's what sponsors teach you to do. Sponsors are the best leaders in the world. Unlike a CEO, a president, a coach, a mentor, they don't inspire through strength. They share their experience and where they fell down so that you can learn from it. And they show you how they lead themselves so that you can do the same. No one else leads that way. And so if you're able to stay clean and you get a sponsor and you work a program, you know how to lead yourself. Like you know how to lead yourself. And so then when I go to the leaders, I'll be like, hey, you keep talking about wanting to be a great leader. You're, in a, you're a middle manager at a big corporate company. You want to be a great leader, but you're scared as hell of speaking out in this meeting. You're not even leading yourself. I know a drug addict that could do that easily, but you can't do that. So, hey, you know what? You want to be at the top of the pinnacle of leadership. You want to change the world, but the way that you're going right now is not the method that actually achieves that. It might get you the corner office. It might get you the money, the stuff, the whatever, the title, but it's not going to, on your deathbed, you're going to know that you weren't true to yourself. If you were hiding what you really thought, if you were saying yes to things you could say no to, if you're hiding your weaknesses, if you're avoiding difficult conversations, holding back your unique perspective. Hell, with my book, the first version that I wrote, I was holding back my unique perspective. I put on a mask and I had to completely rip it apart and rewrite it because I'd stuffed it full of all this shit that I thought would somehow make me an expert because I was insecure that people wouldn't take me seriously. And then the last chapter, The Tale of Two Divorces, wasn't even in the first, first version of the book. Mm. People told me I shouldn't put it in there. So the rant is to say, if you don't lead yourself, you are not actually fit to lead others. And most of the quote unquote leaders in this world are not leading themselves, but people that are, are addicted to something need to learn how to lead themselves in order to stay clean. And then therefore they learn leadership to a level that most people don't. And it's amazing because as I was reading that, I was thinking of times where I've met people who, you know, when you're in this, this field or this recovery, this area, this profession and, and all that kind of stuff, when I've been to places and I've learned of people who are, you know, I met an owner of a, a restaurant who was a recovering addict and they didn't start out by just the normal route of starting a restaurant. Like they didn't do the whole you know, went to culinary school right away. Like, no, they had a lot of addiction years and they had all this, but as I've met people who've done those types of things and they are now leaders of a restaurant or like an organization that they started up, even like a charity um, or public speaking or stuff like that. Like those leaders have gone through all that stuff of what it takes to, to get to there. And it wasn't just handed to them. Like they had to start from the ground up. That person who is now owns a restaurant probably had to find any job to start working, probably had to make their way up, had to take chance and risks, had to probably be very authentic with, Hey, I'm I'm an addict. Like I'm going to tell you that right off the bat, this is what I'm doing. Versus when we hear that mask idea of, well, do I tell them I'm an addict? Is that going to, is that going to cost me? this are they not going to believe in me then is that going to do this there's a lot of difference between the person who just says that right up front and really tries hard to be that authentic and you see them get into leadership positions right and i think so like notice this much so here's a concrete example right so let's just say that you've got a normal person that's scared to you know be be vulnerable and show their weaknesses 
So I, uh, I ran a nonprofit where we helped 2000 entrepreneurs a year start or grow a business. And most of the entrepreneurs running around would like tell you how great their startup was and how much momentum it had and all these great things they had going on. And you could tell that a lot of them had a lot of challenges and a lot of struggles. And so a lot of times you'd have people say, oh, we have all this momentum, all these great things. And like three months later, they're like out of business. And so they were not truly leading themselves. So then you've got a, a recovering addict with no college degree named Michael Brody Wade, me. And I'm the CEO of a startup. And I realize we get on national television and I realize, wow, we have a lot of exposure and I don't have any experience managing that level of exposure as a CEO of a startup. I got five employees. We have no investors. We have no, no, no one else is helping us. It's just us. None of us have ever done it before. And I was like, man, like I know that I, I, I have an email signature that says CEO, but I feel like a little kid in a suit. Like, I don't know what the F I'm doing. And, and so the message in my head said, don't let anyone know. Your employees will lose trust. Your customers will lose trust. Your, your advisors will lose trust. And, and so I had to go to a meeting um, for recovery. And I was like, well, then how did, I, how did I get clean? How did I stay clean? I was like, oh, I told my story. I admitted my weakness. I asked for help. Um, and so I did what most people don't, what all those entrepreneurs that we would help in the, in the entrepreneur center wouldn't do. I went to my team and said, I have no idea how to be a CEO. I'm scared that that means that you'll leave. But what I'm asking is for your help. And damn it all, if that didn't make them feel like so connected to me, if that didn't create a safe environment, and if then because I exposed my weakness, they helped me find a mentor. And then I went and got that mentor. And so like every week I would go to my team and declare my weakness, not with a prefacing of it's all good now or whatever, like my actual genuine weakness where I'm like, man, if I can't figure this out, I should fire myself. I don't know. And as a result, they were able to do the same. So they didn't waste all this time and energy lying and hiding, like, you know, trying to make a graph that's going down, look like it's going up, like manipulating stuff. They were able to declare their weaknesses too. And so it's very counterintuitive to what it takes to survive. But if you are a recovering addict, the reason that you see so many of these recovering people go from, I was like a dishwasher to I, I ran the restaurant, is when you declare to strangers that you are an addict and you need help, telling someone that you don't know how to be a CEO isn't that scary. It's really not that scary comparatively. And when you are able to practice the art of just being honest and vulnerable with a sponsor, with, with your community, with whatever, you now expose yourself to so many solutions. And so the same thing is true on the business side. We have all these people in the business world that are hiding their weaknesses, hiding what they really think, and they're scared. But the truth is, is that 85% of the things that we fear, we found a stat, 85% of the things that we fear never come true. So actually what we're not doing is evaluating the opportunity cost. If I had not declared my weaknesses to my team, I would have never gotten the mentor and we would have failed. And the only reason that I was able to overcome all of the wiring not to tell them was because I was a recovering addict. That is why recovering addicts have the capacity to go from nothing to something incredible. And that is not something that is exclusive to addicts. It's just, we have a really great training grant for how to do it. This reminds me of a story that I tell a lot of people about where I had a, a client who started working at a job third shift and what was happening is after third shift, a lot of his other coworkers would invite him to go to the bar and get breakfast and drinks. Like that was a common thing for a third shift worker. Yeah. 
And at first he was giving excuses and saying like, oh, I got to get back or I'm tired. And he would come to sessions and he would talk about like, I don't know how long I can keep this up. Like, I don't know how many more, you know, it's like, he's got like an excuse Rolodex for like, how many appointments do you have at that early in the morning? And we, we did all this talking about it and, you know, what do you say about it? You know, how do you come across? And he told me, he's like, all right, next time I go to work, I'm going to, I'm going to tell them, you know, that I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I'm in recovery. So next week he comes back and he says to me, and I was like, all right, so what happened? You do? And he goes, I couldn't tell them. So it was like these, these three guys, he goes, but this is what did happen. He goes, I'm walking and I made up an excuse why I couldn't go again. And my manager was behind me and came up to me and said, oh, I noticed you don't go with the guys to the bar. How come? And he goes, I decided to just tell him and be honest with him. So he goes, he tells me, he goes, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I'm in recovery. And this is what he tells me his boss says. His boss goes, so am I. Yep. And the boss offered to take him to a different like diner restaurant that was not as like much risk as a bar, but he avoided that authenticity with those three coworkers, you know, put that mask on very afraid of what they would think, what they would say, how they would treat him. Finally took that chance to say that to his boss and that reaction the boss gave was what makes the story amazing. Now it doesn't happen all the time. So there's no, like being authentic doesn't mean it's going to be, easy or perceived so welcomely but it does show you that when you do that it makes a difference in all the other stuff you try and do by wearing a mask or hiding something because that's one thing that people with addiction know is masking and hiding and burying and keeping secrets that stuff in the end never helps no at all it makes things worse it makes things harder consequences become more grave you commit more things that were worse than the original crime <laughs> you know like right. all that stuff that starts to happen makes it a lot worse so people with addiction they know that and, and they can recognize that that's part of what when i wear this mask what that does i believe there's people people who don't have an addiction i think they have a lot harder time seeing that someone with an addiction I think they definitely can relate to that. Totally. And I think, you know, it's more, it doesn't happen all the time, but it's surprising how many times I have um, let my guard down and found out that someone else was in recovery too. Like that's the one thing about, you know, it's one of the kind of risky things around my messages. You know, one of the things I say is the only downside to being in recovery is we are kind of taught to put a mask on to take a mask off. We go into an anonymous program, so we kind of wear a mask about like whether we have that, and then we're able to be real with everybody in that program. And that makes sense, especially for people in early recovery, but then we carry that message and we say, well, we have to remain anonymous at all times. And, and, and everybody has their personal choice around anonymity, but because so many people practice anonymity, we have like, and I'm, I'm not trying to pretend that like recovering addicts are running the world and we're like the Illuminati, but like we got a lot of undercover agents placed right. at very high positions oh, yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Like we've got you fucking surrounded, dude. You just don't know it. And the problem is we don't know it. 
because so many people are practicing anonymity. We don't know who, who is, who is us, but I can't tell you how many times I've been in a business situation where like someone, because I'm so open about my story, they'd be like, I remember there was a, a friend of mine that was running, she ran the, the, the business journal here in Nashville. And so she was a very well-known member of the business community here. Um, and, and she's not um, in 12 step, but she, uh, she had a family member that was, and I remember the first time I met with her, I was like, Oh, you know, like she's cool, whatever. But then when she shared that with me, um, that was a transformative experience because I felt connected to her like that. And then we were able to bond in a way that most people can't. Now, sometimes I've also like been in a business situation where I hoped that someone was in recovery and then they weren't. Um, and so like, it didn't go the way that I wanted, but it's amazing how much that you have no idea what happens when you lead yourself. So you may not always find people in recovery where you're going to feel connection, but I guarantee you that if you share that you're in recovery, you're going to inspire someone that needs recovery. I can guarantee that. When I was at Dell, you know, I, I took some heat for saying I was a recovering addict and some people spread some rumors that I had relapsed and that was a negative. It didn't ultimately hurt me, but that was so worth it because there were like over the course of my years, there were at least 10 different people that came to me, you know, asked, you know, I'd get these like really like um, covert, uh, like shady emails, like, can we meet in this office? And I'm like, all right. So either they think I've relapsed and they think this is a drug deal or <laughs> they need to disclose that they're an addict. And it was always the latter because, uh, because people knew I was not actually using, but like, they'd be like, so I have a problem and be like, okay, cool. Like, let, let, let's talk about it. I'll tell you my experience. And I'll tell you what resources there are. So you just, I'm not, I don't, I would never judge someone for not being open. Um, your right to your anonymity is your right, but just exposing that when you're open about your recovery, you have no idea who else is going to be aligned with you because of that and who else you can help simply by leading yourself and being willing to share that. Absolutely. When I talk about like vulnerability with clients and patients of a lot of issues that they're dealing with, that guardedness and that mask may serve as like, you, you're believing it's blocking off some of the things that might hurt you. So that kind of is like your defense. But what you're also doing is you're preventing some of the good things that can also come in too. You can't just separate totally. those. So you can't totally. just say, I'm going to hide um, you know, my addiction and just not share it with anybody. And then are hoping that somehow you're also going to meet someone who's gone through that or someone that you could also connect with. That's not going to happen if you're closed off like that. So I understand like vulnerability does like sharing things, being authentic requires us to be vulnerable and we are vulnerable that opens us up to things. And for the most part, when we think of being vulnerable, we think that that's going to hurt us that that's going to harm yep. us. So we pull up and I often use like a castle as that imagery of like vulnerability. And when we're really closed up, like the drawbridge is up, we got our troops around the, the stone walls and we got our, they're ready to, to fight. But when you do that, Initially, you're thinking you're keeping away the harmful things, but you also can't let any of the good stuff in. You can't let any of the other potential stuff come in when you're that guarded and when you're that masked off, so to speak. So that's really important to emphasize with people too, that when you are doing that for reasons we understand, what you also have to learn is that by doing that, you're also going to miss out on this. You're not going to from a math perspective, 
like that stat that we found that 85% of the things that people fear never come true. What you're doing, and it's a business term, what you're doing is you're paying a tremendous opportunity cost that isn't even rational. You are putting up all these roadblocks to all things, good and bad, but because 85% of the things aren't as bad as you think, and a lot of them are good, you're actually cutting off more good things than you are bad things. But for us, it is more scary to be caught off guard and experience a negative thing than it is to miss out on a good thing. Like there's even research that says, you know, like when you're selling or marketing a product, you're more effective if it's a pain than if it's a benefit. And so we're motivated like that, but then you can turn the tables on that because if you are more vulnerable, you open yourself up to more opportunity to connect to people, to be more successful. And you actually mathematically are optimizing your opportunities for success personally and professionally in a way that most people aren't simply because they're catering without even consider any consideration to um, an involuntary reflex that isn't rational. It, it's, it's logical, but it's not rational when you're analyzing what are all the opportunities, is it worth the cost and all that kind of stuff. One of the last things I want to talk to you about is what makes your book stand out to others. And I really thought about this as I read it and I kind of like looked over it and was comparing it to some other things that I've read and, and what I've heard. And what I appreciate about your book is what I believe makes it stand out. You focus a lot on the how to recover part, how to do this. When you read or hear stories from speakers and books, it is so heavily filled with the addiction mm-hmm. stories. And I had a clinical supervisor who really told me about, we don't like every person with an addiction has the addiction stories. Yep. We all have the, how bad things have gotten in the war. Yeah, we all got the t-shirt. All that. But not everyone has those recovery stories. Yep. And you, I've heard speakers, you know, their, their 20 minute, 30 minute talk is 20 minutes of this is how my addiction was here's five minutes of my recovery. You read a book and it's like nine chapters are how bad things got. The 10th one was, well, I got into rehab and I did this and now I'm, right. now I'm great. Your book doesn't do that. Your book doesn't spend an overwhelming amount of time covering the war stories that a lot of people have, that a lot of people with an addiction can relate to. They don't need it that like they don't need to learn more about that they've lived that what i love about your book is you spend so much time focusing on the how to recover which i can't off the top of my head i'd have to i'd have to go through all my my books and and check but i don't know anyone that compares to yours as far as that ratio and i think that is like a that's a difference maker that's a game changer that it's easy for me to find someone who's got the addiction stories. I got a clinic mm. of 420 people, right, right? but I don't have all of them can't tell me the recovery stories and how they did it. So I don't know if you, I'm interested to know your thoughts about that, but I think that that's like a, that's like a kudos gold star in my book as to, wow, this is, this is what makes this book different. Dude, you know, I don't know that anybody's ever really appreciated that or said that. So like, that means a lot to me. Um, And 
I think part of it's like I was just really lucky to be raised by um, some old timers and in, in, in the in the recovery fellowship that I joined. And I remember um, early on, one of the old timers pulled me aside after a meeting and and said, you know, that there's this conversation about like how much complaining should happen in a meeting versus how much solution and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things she said was, she said everybody in that room can relate to the problem. Most of the people don't have the solution. So it's our job to carry the message of the solution so that they can stop having the problem. And, and so when that was just like the way I, I came up in recovery, but then I think that I'm probably going to say something that's like potentially insensitive here. I think you get a lot of people that like to go out and talk about their recovery after they get a year or two clean or sober or whatever. They're like, you know, it's new, it's novel, and they want to announce to the world and, and tell people what they should do. Um, I, I was taught by old timers that um, significant amount of time in recovery, active recovery is something that's really, really valuable. And, and for, so for me, I was also taught that I need to share my experience. And so for me, my experience was I really appreciate the how-to that recovery gave me because I would be dead if it didn't. And it worked. And I think the difference between my story potentially and some other people's stories that I've read is I use that how-to as an explicit playbook in my professional life too. And so as a result, I just have such a deep appreciation that when I looked at how much do we, how much, because we knew we could do shock value, right? Yeah. We knew we could do shock value, but I got news for you. No matter how much you tell your story as an addict, someone always has a worse one. Like my first day in rehab, I seriously, I walk in and this guy goes, so what are you in for? Like, it's like jail. And, and I'm like, uh, you know, alcohol, weed, painkillers, mushrooms, whatever I can get my hands on. He's like, no IV drugs. I was like, no. He's like, get the fuck out of here and, and come back when you have a real addiction. That guy relapsed. He didn't stay clean. But the point is, is that it's easy to talk about the shock value of the addiction story. And some of, one of the things I find as I, as I go and I talk about this, a lot of people want to hear that. And one of the things I say is like, dude, like everybody knows that story. I saw leaving Las Vegas. I saw Johnny Depp do it in blow. Like I, I've seen the movies, got the t-shirt. Every addict can share that story. Um, I not only appreciate the how-to and the personal side, I appreciate the how-to on the professional side. That's why I wanted this book to be different. I wanted it to be the how-to. And for me, it was really like about decoding why the heck is recovery the number one professional superpower no one's talking about. And it's because I don't think people even outside of recovery understand why recovery works. I don't right. think they understand why it works. I don't think they understand that there's a three-legged stool. I don't think they understand it's a combination of, for those of us in a 12-step program, but it's true for whatever you do, that there is a system that allows you to reorient your perception of the world, that there is a guy that simply shares their experience. They're not your guru. They just do that, but there's someone who has practiced that. And that there's a society full of people doing the same thing. When that happens, magic happens. And that's what allows and enables long-term recovery. But it's not just about, oh, I go to meetings or, or you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm high on life. It's like, it's, it's the dirty, like small moments where it's like, did you practice a 10th step? Did you meditate today? Like our 11th step has the word meditation in it. And the steps were written in the late 30s, like before mindfulness was popular. So there is a very practical how-to here that I just really love because, and frankly, it's born out of my defect of character that every addict has. Every addict is, is obsessed with trying to control how they will feel in the future. And so for me, I was able to understand the how-to of recovery, apply that because I wanted to be able to predict how I was going to feel in the business world. 
it's easy to predict how you're going to feel if you're vulnerable. It's hard if you're wearing a mask. And, and so like, I just appreciate that you appreciate that because we could have gone for shock value. It wouldn't have been different. It would have been like any other addict story. We could have just talked about recovery, being a recovering person and not talked about the specific how to, and we could have talked just about the how to, and I'll talk about how to inform the professional side, but that's why I wanted to write the book. If I thought I was writing a book that had already been written, I wouldn't have done that because it just wouldn't, I didn't write this to be special or to get attention. I wrote it to carry a message that I wish more people were aware of. So I'm just like, so I know it was a long ass rant, but like, I'm so grateful that you noticed that because you're the only person I've done a podcast with um, or an interview with that has noticed that. Yeah. It's amazing. Cause you know, I don't need to read it. You know, those stories help me as a counselor to understand addiction. It, it helps me to understand what goes on. And as I've done this longer, you know, I'm almost on 16 years of doing this. And, you know, another book comes out about someone in their story. Like I hear stories all the time in my sessions. Like that's, I hear, I hear all the stories about it. When I read one of those books, it's not like I'm learning a new story that is telling me something about how to recover doing something different. It's just telling me a story of what this person is going through. So when you give someone like a good book on that to read and you're, they read it and they're like, oh yeah, like, well, what'd you learn? Well, I learned about this guy did this and this guy had this, but like, but what did you learn for you about what to do? What did you take away from that? And for a lot of those stories, there isn't a lot of what's the takeaway for me to do about my life. It's, oh, I know a lot about this guy's story. You share your story, which by the way, I'm sure there's a lot more of your life in the stories that were about that. Yeah. But you don't let that consume the whole purpose or mission of what you're trying to do. You share parts that are important. You share tidbits and stories and you share examples of things that you've learned. But it wasn't like, you know, day one, this was my life when I started using and going all into that detail. Like you give hints so we understand what happened, but you really do a good job of constantly anchoring it towards this is what it means of what to do or where to go with this. Like we don't get lost into your whole life story because really it's not about your whole life story. No, this is, that was, that was like my obsession when we were, when we were writing it, my team didn't fully understand because I was like, I don't care about me. I want the impact for the reader. And so then what would happen is they'd be like, okay, so we need to write like a really, you know, technical part of this chapter and we need to use other people's stories. I'm like, well, wait, I don't want to use other people's stories. Like, well, I, I thought it wasn't about you. I was like, yeah, but what I learned in recovery is we share our experience. So the only way I can really communicate what I want in terms of impact is through the lens of my experience, but I only want to share it to the extent that it's helpful to the reader um, to be able to learn what I'm trying to teach them to be able to have the impact. And so we had a story in the, in the book that was someone else's story. Cause they're like, they're like, I'm confused, Mike, you said you didn't care about making it about your story. And then like, all we have are your story. So we got to put someone else's story in. And I said, yes. And that was like a mask. I was holding back my unique perspective. And then I, later I got rid of it and I was like, look, this is not about hearing myself talk about myself. Everybody's heard, you know, the story or whatever, but we share through our experience. That's what a sponsor does. They don't sit there and tell you what you should do or talk about what everybody else is doing. They tell you how they did it. And you get to take what you can use and leave the rest and you get to learn from that. And I see this book as me playing the role of sponsor. Could be a little arrogant, but like that's like the vantage point I'm trying to take. 
And, and while, and so they're like, okay, well then they were like, we got to tell all your stories. I'm like, no, that's not it either. Like, like I, everybody's seen the addiction story. So it was just, it was confusing because I was trying to use all everything I've learned in recovery and, and everybody helping me write the book was a normie. So, um, but I had like my cluster, my best friends in recovery that I would call when I'd be like, okay, like help me. And they all help like uh, shout out to Holly, Charlie, Kate and Chuck and Toby out there. But like, um, it just, it, it, it was, it was a team effort because I had so much to say. Um, and so much I wanted to do. I thought a book I w- at the beginning, I thought I wouldn't be able to fill up the book. And by the end, um, my editor was like, you've got like five books. So we're just going to pick which one we start with. Um, and, and it was, it was, I had just your level of detailed appreciation for the way that I wrote the book, um, means so much to me. And I'm just like grateful for being, having an opportunity to be on uh, your podcast and to answer the questions and to have somebody that appreciates what we put out in the world. Yeah. Your book is in all the ways that we've talked about, it's such a difference maker. It's almost got like a paradigm shift view of it. It's got like a merge, like a convergence of like different ideas and different audiences and and connecting them. It's a a game changer with how traditional stories of addiction and books about addiction have been written. And for all those reasons, it's a book that, you know, plain and simple just really stands out that you look at my bookshelf and if I had ones that I'm going to recommend to people or say to people or to have that, that is one that stands out. It's not going to be one that's just like, we'll read this person's story. They're going to talk about getting high and they're going to talk about went to rehab and they're going to talk about, you know, they got sober. So, you know, that'll be, that'll be an entertaining book to read. Like if I want someone to really work on something as a, as a counselor, you know, working with other counselors um, and working with the patients and clients that I have, to really be like, I want, I want you to work on something. Hey, this isn't going to be just read this and be done with it. Like if you're, right. if you're, if you're going to put the work into it, this is where to put it. I can't say that with other books. I can't have them read some of the, the known addiction books and biographies and say, well, read this and now put the work that this book says to do with yours. I can say, Hey, you're going to learn about this guy. You're not going to know everything, but he's going to tell you some things that you put to work and you're going to see some results. So you want entertainment, it's out there. But if you want something that's going to actually put something into place to give you like a roadmap and to push you to actually accomplish things, this is what's different than everything else out there. So for all those things, your book stands out to me so much. I didn't really expect that. You know, like I said, the first thing that came out was when I see the cover, I put myself in a bookstore and I was like, where, where am I going with this? Like, I, I don't know which way it would lead me. And it has concluded to such a lot of amazing things. And I appreciate you reaching out to me to be on it and to talk about it because without that, I might not have seen it. So now I get to share about that on this podcast, share it with people that I work with and the counselors that I work with, patients that I have. So this is one that's just going to keep going out and further and further. And I appreciate you reaching out to me to do that because that's, that's yeah, awesome. Thank you for, Hey, thanks for having this platform. The, we, we wanted to be intentional in reaching out to people that were holding space online, have conversations around recovery and, and, and addiction. And so like, I'm grateful that you had me on. Um, and honestly, like what, what I'm more grateful for is that you actually appreciate the book. So 
Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah. Fun talking to you as always. Um, last time we talked, it was fun too. So I really appreciate it. So thanks again for joining and sharing information about your book, yourself, your work. There's a lot more people can learn about. So my listeners, you know, go out there, read his book, watch his TED talk. Uh, that was one of the first things I did too, which was phenomenal. It touches a lot of these same issues and visit your website, which is just your name, michaelbrogate.com. Yep. Or if you want to make more. it easy, uh, we also have a URL, Great Leader Book. And that's a little bit easier than my complicated last name. <laughs> so uh, if, you, if you want to see the TED Talk or, or learn more about the book or me, you can go to greatleaderbook.com and that'll, make, that'll be even easier. Yeah. So read his book, listen to his stuff. It's, it's amazing. It's stuff that I plan on using and providing. And learn more about him. And thanks again for being on this podcast. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. All right. As always, thanks for listening.